1983, elite distance runners from all across the world traveled to Australia to compete in what was an ultra marathon. A 544 mile run. Yes, I did not get those numbers wrong. 544 mile run. And uh, all these athletes from all over the world came together, of course, in their elite diets of the time, based off of all the best, uh, you know, athletic nutrition, the, the best running gear, shoes, no doubt, to run this race, which was to go from Sydney to Melbourne. Except there was one odd competitor in this group. He wasn't wearing the latest Nike footwear, the latest jogging outfit, didn't have the most elite diet. His name was Cliff Young. He was a 61-year-old shepherd in his overall and work boots. Kid you not. And when the gun sounded, the runners leaped from the line and quickly left Cliff far behind as Cliff shuffled along. In fact, Cliff was uh, recorded to have said that he had to take his dentures out for the run because they chattered too much when he ran. But nobody told Cliff that he was supposed to stop and rest at certain points along the race. Most of the runners, after the first day, after running many miles, would stop and get several hours of sleep. But Cliff kept running through the night. Cliff, after all, was a poor shepherd who couldn't afford a horse or an all-terrain vehicle. When there were storms that rolled on his 2,000-acre farm and his sheep needed to be gathered in, he would herd them on foot, running mile after mile to bring his sheep to safety. Nobody knew that when the race began, but everyone knew when the race ended. Because after five days of continuous running, Cliff Young shuffled across the line two days before anybody else did. (laughs) It was a great reversal. Nobody expected 61-year-old Cliff Young to win. Everybody likes an underdog, right? It seems almost like it's, it's built into our DNA to cheer for the underdog. We love the Rocky films. Even if they may not be the best written or the best acted, we love rooting for the underdog. Well, as we look at our passages today in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2, it would appear that God and his Christ appear to us as the underdog. And humility and lowliness... And they're contrasted in a, in a shocking way against these tyrants, these dictators, these 
power-thirsty, evil men who seek to stand against Yahweh and His anointed. But they are no competitors for the underdog. And so this morning we're going to look at three contrasts between Yahweh's anointed, between the Christ and these evil rulers. The first is arrogance versus humility. If you look back to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2, It says, now it happened in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabitants of the earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so what we have here is Luke, the physician, records for us some of the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. And the circumstances, the setting that would take place was that there was a decree, a decree that was given by Caesar Augustus. Now Luke did not need to include these details in his account, but he includes them for us. Now, why would a ruler take a census? There's a couple different reasons. But certainly one reason would to be to stroke one's ego. After all, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. He was the leader of the Roman Empire, this vast land in which he had conquered all these varieties of people. And in fact, he, he was famous. He, he arose to the throne roughly around 27 B.C. after defeating uh, Anthony and Cleopatra, as there was kind of a civil war within the empire. And uh, he attained what, what uh, is commonly called the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. Some of you have memorized some history sentence floating somewhere in your brain related to that. The Roman peace. But one thing you have to understand about the Roman peace, the Roman peace was much like Islamic peace of today. Submit to us or we'll chop your head off. Peace. Everybody loves peace. Peace if you're the victor, right? Peace if you're the one with the biggest guns and the biggest swords and the biggest soldiers and the biggest horses and the biggest chariots. And so Caesar Augustus orders this decree. And, and, and as I mentioned, uh, certainly one motivation would be to, uh, to, to see the numbers underneath your thumb but also the benefits of such a census would directly be for the purposes of taxation. I mean, after all, that was how you would assert your authority. You would make sure the people underneath your rule paid what you believe they owed you. Like any bully in the lunchroom, give me your lunch money. And I'll protect you. And so this was Caesar Augustus. He, Luke uses the Latin title Augustus, the August One. He avoids another Greek title, 
His Majesty the Emperor, probably because of some of the religious overtones that it had. But he was indeed a dictator, the most powerful man in the world, flattered by the Roman Senate as the, quote, son of a god, and hailed by the poet Virgil as the son of the deified who will make a golden age again. But he's not the only one in the passages that we looked at, right? You also have a lower level governor. A man by the name of Herod the Great. He comes up in Matthew chapter 2. And Herod the Great, as he is now called, he was born in 73 B.C. He was named king of Judea by the Roman Senate. In 40 B.C., by 37 B.C., he had crushed, with the help of the Romans, all opposition to his rule. He was son of the Idumean Antipater. In other words, he was not Jewish. He was Idumean, which didn't fly well with the Jewish people. He was wealthy, politically gifted, intensely loyal. He was an excellent administrator, clever enough to remain in the good graces of the successive Roman emperors. His famine relief was superb. He had special building projects. In fact, the temple itself, which is sometimes called the Herodian Temple, was because of his administrative gifts. He was admired even by his foes. But, as we see in Matthew chapter 2, he had an insatiable lust for power. So much so that in his later years, which is where we find him in Matthew chapter 2, he would have fits of rage and jealousy where he had killed many of his close associates, even his wife, Mary Omni and at least two of his sons, as he suspected them as plotting the overthrow of his rule. And of course we see him in Matthew chapter 2 getting a, a whiff from the Magi coming from the east that there is this king, this Israelite king who was born and all of a sudden he's willing to do such extreme measures as to murder all the baby boys of a village in Bethlehem. That is a tremendous lust for power. The threat that this child posed to Herod, he perceived and interpreted and was willing to eliminate any obstacles by any means necessary. And of course this is contrasted with the Lord Jesus himself and his earthly parents. Back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, and everyone was going to be registered for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city 
of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was with child. Now what happened while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. So Luke records that uh, Joseph and Mary, who is with child, they travel from Nazareth in the north to, Jeru- or to Bethlehem in the south in order to register evidently part of the requirements of the registration for the census that had been ordered by Caesar Augustus was that you had to go to your place of birth to register. And so this is where Joseph and Mary go. And of course looming in the background is an ancient prophecy 700 years prior that Pastor Chris read between one of the songs, Micah, Chapter 5 and verse 2 and following. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who will be ruler in Israel. This ancient prophecy that even the the, the scribes and religious leaders of Matthew chapter 2 understood that this was to be the place, the birthplace of Messiah. And so... Mary and Joseph head to Bethlehem to register. And while they're there, Mary is in labor. In verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. And so, Mary gives birth to this child. This child in, in, in their situation is one in which they, they are uh, traveling and so they don't have a place to stay. And all the rooms are booked up and so they wind up in what appears to be something of a barn and The baby is born, wrapped in cloths, and is lying in a manger. And many of you know that the the manger, this was an animal eating trough, right? Just doesn't have the same ring with the Christmas carol. Away in the animal eating trough. Now, I've mentioned... Previous teachings, my attempts at being an urban farmer these days. We have 12 chickens in our backyard. And uh, sometimes I'm involved in uh, the refilling of their eating troughs. And uh, they're filthy, right? Birds are incontinent, as most animals. They don't use indoor plumbing. And so they do-do everywhere. I wouldn't put my baby in an animal eating trough unless it had been in the dishwasher 40 times. And yet this is, this is where 
This baby is laid. Such humble beginnings. Uh, seemingly almost like a, a homeless couple traveling, giving birth in a barn, a baby laid in an animal eating trough. And, and, and of course, when we're reading the rest of the New Testament, that, that there are transcendent realities that, that go way beyond the mere physical circumstances here that demonstrate the humility of Christ, right? Like Philippians chapter 2. Who being in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even unto death upon a cross. That this baby was eternally God who is now clothed in humanity and who has condescended for our good. What a striking contrast, right? These diabolical, power-hungry leaders. And then there's this baby king who should receive all adoration and worship, who, who we would have thought if we wrote the script, he would have been born in, in some palace somewhere with all the pomp and circumstance of royalty, but that's not what's taking place here. It's such humble beginnings and humble endings. The Apostle Paul would write to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And I want to draw our attention to this humility of Christ in contrast to the arrogance of these rulers so that you would trust Jesus. So that you would trust Jesus. Caesar Augustus is long dead. Herod the Great is no more. Each of them have died and headed to the judgment of the confines of hell. But the spirit of Herod the Great still lives today. We've witnessed this throughout history. In fact, you don't have to be an ancient historian. All you have to really have done is live long enough, right? In the 20th century, 170 million people were murdered by the hands of their own government. Whether it was the killing fields in, uh, uh, of uh, Pol Pot 
whether it was Joseph Stalin starving people in Ukraine, his own people. Or Nazi Germany. Again, evil rulers murdering their own people. Under the influence so often of Marxist ideologies. And yet so many of these Marxist ideologies are propagated regularly in our school systems today. In the past several years, we've witnessed government leaders all the way from the highest office of of the land to local levels just lusting after power. Declaring edicts, forcing people to put experimental medication inside their bodies. Forcing them to cover their face. Cover your face. Cover your face. And yet all this is in contrast with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ with such tremendously humble beginnings who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. You can trust him. You cannot trust so many of the hypocritical leaders of our society today. You can't trust the latest public health edicts, but you can trust Jesus. He is genuine. He is the real thing. But not only do we see the humility, the the arrogance versus humility, we see the violence versus suffering. I mean, we see this edict go forth in Luke chapter 2, and you ask yourself, how, how could you get Jewish people to, to travel like Joseph and Mary travel lengthy distances, evidently while pregnant. We don't know all the exact circumstances. Why, you know, in a sense, why would you travel, uh, you know, on donkey or whatever while pregnant? But, but what we do see is the multitudes abiding by this edict of the census, which again was for the purpose of taxation. Well, how could you possibly get people to abide by that? By the threat of the sword, right? By the reality that within Israel during this time period was a multitude of Roman soldiers walking the streets, In other words, Israel was an occupied land. It was under the thumb of the Roman emperor. And so it took the threat of violence. It took the force of the weapon and the power of the Roman empire to enforce such an edict. And 
the Roman Empire was famous for the ways in which they would publicly enforce the law. You might have heard of it. It's called crucifixion. In fact, it is an interesting irony that the Gospel of Luke begins and ends with the two most hated thing that any Jewish person would and would hate in relationship to the Roman Empire, namely taxation and crucifixion. We will take your money and we will take your life if you do not abide by what we say. And similarly, at a lower level, we see in Matthew chapter 2, Herod the Great, when he perceives the threat of his power and investigates as to the timing of when this star was seen by these magi, he gives this order in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. It says that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the magi, he became enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had carefully determined from the magi. Herod resorts to violence, murderous intent, murderous activities in order to keep his power. This is always the way of evil governing officials. To eliminate life, to not uphold the dignity of life, but to eliminate life as whenever it becomes an obstacle. And of course, this is contrasted with the Lord Jesus, who, as we see from his very beginnings, he has a target on his back. From the time of him being an infant or perhaps a toddler in Matthew chapter 2, there's a bounty on his head. He is a wanted man. The the highest authority within this area who is a, a kind of a legate of the Roman Empire wants him dead. And he has to run with his family to Egypt to evade a premature death. But of course, this is only because, as he tells us in the Gospel of John, his hour had not yet come. But eventually, his hour would come. And he would encounter those Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would receive the kiss of Judas upon his cheek. But make no mistake about it. He was the one who was in total control. Because when those Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And the Roman soldiers just flopped to the ground. As a reminder of who was in control. 
But yet he tells us in John chapter 10, no man takes my life away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And so Jesus, in contrast with these religious, with these governing leaders, does not resort to violence and sacrifice lives for his own lustful heart, but instead he sacrifices his own life. He lays down his own life for our behalf so that we can be reconciled to this great God. As Mark records Jesus saying in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a contrast. This Jesus giving of himself. This Jesus embracing suffering for the good of those who would subject themselves to him as king. Indeed, what a savior. What a one who is worthy of your trust. What a one who you know uses his authority as it's supposed to be used in any civil uh, position of authority for the good of those underneath it. God is the one who gives authority. And, and as he has given different spheres of authority, whether it's in the church or whether it's the civil authority, or whether it's family authority, all authority is to be exercised for the good of those underneath that authority. And because of the sinfulness of man, that's often not the way it plays out in the institutions of human authority. Instead, we see People not sacrificing on behalf of those underneath their authority, but instead sacrificing those underneath their authority for their own wicked desires. But that is not the Lord Jesus. He is good, my friend. He is good. He has sacrificed himself for your good. From, again, the earliest beginnings of his infancy all the way to the end when he's dying in agony upon the cross, suspended between heaven and earth and crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He sacrifices himself. He bears the full wrath of the Father on your behalf so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have eternal life. very easy to be skeptical about everything today. And there's many things you should be skeptical about. But you don't have to be skeptical about Jesus. He deserves the full weight of your trust. He is trustworthy. Turn to him, my friend. And trust your life, your everything, your all, your family, your work, your finances, everything to him. He is trustworthy. Be careful of putting your trust in princes and horses. 
but you don't need to be careful about putting all the weight of your trust in Jesus. Again, it's, it's hard to imagine a time period, at least in my own life, where there was a greater distrust of leadership in our country. A greater suspicion. But you can trust in Jesus. Trust Jesus because instead of being arrogant, he is the humble one. Instead of being violent and sacrificing life for his behalf, he is the one who embraces suffering and sacrifices for our behalf. And now thirdly, and lastly, for your joy and encouragement, losing versus winning. Losing versus winning. Nobody's celebrating Caesar Augustus's birthday. Nobody knows Herod the Great's birthday. Few people even remember him outside of biblical studies. Rulers come and go. But the Lord Jesus is the forever king. And he came in his first coming and has inaugurated his kingdom. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, that is the great theme, right, of, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, this is why the, the Magi, Matthew records the Magi, the king makers from the east coming and bringing gifts to the king. And this kingdom is inaugurated and we see the growth of this kingdom throughout the book of Acts. And it's quite shocking. In fact, Luke records that, uh, you know, that, that it seemed like the whole world was turned upside down. It starts with small, humble beginnings with just 120 in, the, in an upper room and it, and it spreads like wildfire. But again, not without suffering. Not without these humble means that God uses to advance his kingdom. Not chariots and horses, but a message. Prayer, bloody martyrs. And you read the history of the first several centuries of the early church, whether it was Polycarp or Ignatius or these different early church leaders, so many of them gave their lives. They sealed their testimony with blood. And this is quite compelling, right? Quite a compelling testimony, so much that more and more people believed. So much that eventually the entire Roman Empire Acknowledging Christianity. Who would have thunk it? We live in a day and age where Christianity seems to be losing. But you need to understand and believe the testimony of scriptures. It will not lose in the end. Because the king of this kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And, and no matter what your understanding of the end times and, and how it's all going to unfold, I think we can all agree that when it's all said and done, Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel. Remember there's that vision, that dream of the statue with the different nations represented on the different parts of that statue. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 to 45 it says, In those days the kings, in, those day, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause the kingdom to, to rise up which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future so that the dream is certain and the interpretation is trustworthy. And, and, and even in this passage, God is, is giving glimpses here of the reality that he's the one who's, in, who, he, who's on the throne. I mean, you think about what's going on and despite <coughs> the decree of Caesar Augustus, he thinks he's just getting more money for taxation, or he's just stroking his own ego with the, the numbers under his rule. But in reality, through this decree, it brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill an ancient prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That despite the machinations of men, God always wins. J.C. Ryle commenting says, Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Quirinius think that they were the only that, that they were only instruments in the hand of the God of Israel and were carrying out the eternal purposes of the King of Kings. Little did they think that they were helping to lay the foundation of a kingdom before which empires of this world would all go down one day and Roman idolatry pass away. The words of Isaiah upon a like occasion should be remembered. In Isaiah 10, 7, he means not so, neither does his heart think so. Caesar Augustus and Herod and Quirinius were just exercising their own selfish interests. But unbeknownst to them, they were carrying out the will of the Almighty. Evil rulers today think that they are flexing their power, but they are merely doing the bidding of Almighty God. And the end of the story is the reality that all those in heaven and on earth and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The psalmist captures this in Psalm 2. 
Asking the question, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. And the only appropriate response that the psalmist David lays out is, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. One day there will be a day of violence for this king, but it will be a just and righteous violence to execute judgment upon those who oppose him and his kingdom. And so you want to trust this king. He wins. He is God's forever king who will rule in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever wherein righteousness dwells. You want to be on his team. This should calm our anxieties and fears. We're regularly bombarded with news throughout the day, alerts on our phone, social media. It's hard not to know what's going on on what's happening in every corner of the earth or at least what they want us to hear was happening. And there can be temptations towards fear and anxiety. What's happening in this world? And to be sure, there's many things that we should be concerned about. But we also need to know that ultimately Christ and his kingdom prevails forever and ever. That Christ is the victor. It's said that Philip Melanchthon was often tempted towards fear and anxiety. And his good friend Martin Luther would have to correct him and counsel him. And it was said that Luther would regularly tell Philip, quote, cease, Philip, from trying to govern the world. Stop trying to govern the world. Stop trying to think you're in control of everything. God is in control. And he wins in the end. At the funeral of Louis XIV, the great cathedral was packed with mourners 
paying final tribute to the king whom they all considered great. The room was dark, save one candle, which illumined the great solid casket that held the mortal remains of the monarch. At the appointed time, the court preacher Massillon stood to address the assembly of clergy in France. And as he rose, he reached from the pulpit and blew out the candle. The candle was there to symbolize the greatness of the king. And when the darkness was there because the candle was blown out, one could only hear these four words, God only is great. Let's pray.